this week's episode of The Cinematologists, we focus on the BFI Blu-ray release of Chris Petit's existential British road movie, Radio On. The film gave us the perfect excuse to bring on one of the original supporters and true friends of the show, Mark Jenkin, who kindly took the time out from editing his new feature, Ennis Men, to discuss why Radio On is one of his most influential films. We talk about the film's singular place in British film history and examine how its style is informed by a European art house sensibility, particularly in terms of the links to Wim Wenders and the new German cinema. We also discuss the way the film is structured musically, with signature Bowie tracks, along with the electronic futurism of, of Kraftwerk, and even Sting pops up to give an Eddie Cochran tribute. If you enjoy The Cinematologists, we'd really appreciate a review, and a share on your social media networks of choice, or even consider becoming a Patreon member, where you get access to all of our bonus content, including our monthly newsletter. But now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend Neil Fox. Neil, how are you doing today? Very well. It's lovely to talk to you. And yeah, the sun is shining. The term is ending. Life is good. <laughs> how about you? I feel like sometimes we, we have to reiterate how much we do actually like and love our, our jobs because often I'm the same. I feel like I'm like the, the, the Debbie Downer on education is terrible. It's actually just because we want education to be to be so good. It's that got that higher idealized sense in our heads and when it doesn't match up to that it, it you know what i mean it can be disappointing can't it absolutely yeah we strive for it to be the utopian ideal and <laughs> mostly it's not but that's true and i was talking to some students last week about how some of the things that i'd done because of the online pandemic necessities had actually been some of the best experiences i've had in teaching for years you know like the the weekly film club where we we got together and sort of um, watch stuff that we'd set for the week, and then the one sort of the start of the week where we had a sort of coffee together, we just and, sort of, and talked about a theme. Were just really great conversations, you know, that weren't assessment based. They weren't about grades. They were just about things people had seen, things you know. And it was yeah, it was really rewarding and really fun. And I hope that that can sort of continue. So yeah, as always, the negativity is is, is matched with positivity. You're right. We should be more more reflective of the good stuff as well. Yeah, and I think even with the the last few weeks dealing with the sort of end of term panic with students, I think some of it actually has just been, I really want to make a good film, you know, so I need an extension and I need a bit more time to, because I want my film to be half, half decent, which is which is a nice sensibility rather than, you know, I'm, I'm panicking because I haven't done anything. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see next semester how much of that balance between face-to-face -face again because I think we are going to be a lot more face-to-face -face in terms of teaching but how that is balanced with some remote aspects and you know whether that works and 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 hopefully it's done in a in in the right spirit rather than being just a sort of cost-cutting exercise which is always the fear I think yeah I've been thinking about that because I do this thing called the cafe clutch which is the German word for co conversations with copious amounts of coffee um and I do it sort of <laughs> nine o'clock on a Monday morning for half an hour and uh it's just a really nice way to start the week. And you couldn't really do it, like students couldn't really come in for half an hour on campus, but why can't we st still start the week online with where we all just literally just make a coffee and chat about what we're going to do for the week and what we've been watching and things like that. Like, So yeah, I think that like everything, there's, there's things that have been learned. I think it would still be nice for students to just rock up and do that. 
and I think that because they were introduced not as cost cutting, but as how can we make the week a nice, you know, a nice week where hopefully be maintained. Yeah, interesting to see what what remains and what uh, what doesn't. Yeah, it's interesting there you um, mention a kind of uh, German connection because there's going to be a lot of uh, German connections, I think, in this episode. So do you want to uh, tell the listeners about today's show and introduce our guest, of course? Sure, let's do it. So today we're going to be talking about Chris Petit's uh, Radio On from 1979, which is currently being reissued by the BFI, a beautiful new Blu-ray. And uh, we got... Yeah, we got the the word that it was coming out. So I thought, oh, yeah, I'll watch that. And maybe I can talk about it at the start of an episode, um, as I do when I sort of talk about things coming out. And then I thought, you know who really, 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 really loves this movie that I haven't spoken to for a while because he's been a bit busy and would be great to talk to about it at, at length is our good friend, Mark Jenkin, who is here with us today to talk about Radio One. So hello, Mark. Hello, Neil. Hello, Dario. How are you doing? We're good. We're doing very well. We're very glad to uh, speak to you and uh, have you on for this episode. So, how are things going with the uh, with the the old filming? Yeah, good. We're we're done. We're we're wrapped. Um, well, we wrapped about three weeks ago, I think. Having shot for twenty one days over five weeks, and I've just I just started the edit. Um, well, about an, about two hours ago. So it's yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have a break now. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I have I've put together. I put all the rushes in order over the last like the four days before that, and I've got a a five hour assembly of it in all the rushes in order, which I think's fine. But apparently they want changes, so <laughs> I'm now I'm now cutting it down and um, release the Jenkin cut. That's what we want. We want the father. <laughs> I was going to say that, that that is primed for an online a long online uh, debate about which cut is the real cut, you know. Yeah, at the moment it looks like about twenty five different films all mashed together. So I'm it's I'm I'm looking at continuity at the moment, which is um, or trying not to think about continuity. Um, but I've just managed to get two shots to cut together in a way that I like, which took two and a half hours. So it, it I am serious when it's. Um, that it's good timing to have a break because I feel like I'm on a real high at the moment. Uh, yeah, great that you've uh, you're joining us for your break for for this chat about a film which I know is close to your heart. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, really special film. That I've I've done quite a lot of um, Q and A's like online in the last fifteen months or whatever it's been, and um, quite often get asked about films that have influenced me and the and the and the films that I keep returning to, and this is definitely one of them. So, I mean, maybe we could, I mean, this is going to be quite a, a free-flowing conversation. We're not going to do a, a, a Q&A style because we haven't prepared any questions for a start. So uh, I think that'll suit you, Mark, uh, just fine. So do, do you want to sort of 
tell us a little bit. I mean, I don't know if you can remember when you first saw the film or did its importance to you hit you straight away or is it something that sort of developed over time? No, it hit me straight away and I remember really clearly where I first saw it. I was in Bristol and I was helping a friend out who was making a documentary sort of like I think it's like a 300 part documentary about Bristol Zoo sort of daytime TV thing that was being made by HTV in in Bristol so I was I was sort of sound recording and doing a bit of camera assisting for a mate of mine who I'd been at film school with who was making this documentary I didn't have any work and he kindly offered me a bit of work up in Bristol so I was I was doing that and I saw I don't know in whatever magazine it what listings magazine in Bristol uh, a little uh, a, a sort of advert for the for, for radio one being shown at the the cube in in bristol and i had I'd never heard of the cube never heard of radio one but it, it got quite a big write-up because of the significance of the film to bristol and it and it, it made me you know as somebody who's interested in film it made me think i should know about this film i don't know about this film so i went along and and watched it and i think at the time i was whilst i was making this um, or working on this Bristol Zoo documentary, the the fact that I was doing that kind of work was making me think I really want to go and make my own film. I want to go and make my own dramatic feature film. So I just saw it at the right time, and it just really confused me when I watched it. And uh, I remember at the end, it it finished and the credits were rolling, and just down the end of um, the row that I was sat on it was just a like hushed silent audience and this young guy down the end of the row probably about my age at the time so sort of mid-20s I suppose um just he just he I just heard him say that is the worst film I've ever seen really loudly and like a few people sort of laughed and stuff in the room and I thought yeah that that might be the worst film I've ever seen as well but I've got a feeling it might be the best film I've ever seen, but I just have no idea of telling the difference between the two at that time. Yeah. And it, it just really stayed with me. And I just kept, and, and what I began to unpick was that Chris Pettit, obviously he didn't care about plot and he didn't care about characters. And I think that's the alienating element yeah. of the film. But I thought that's what I like. And it made me, it made sense of, it just fitted into the other films that I, like or, or other sort of other kind of art I suppose for want of a better term that that I liked and you know and it, and it was a road movie and I'd always re- loved road movies and you know and it's been talked about a lot but it, it is a British road movie that travels from London to Bristol so you know in in the grand scheme of things it's not much of a road movie but I think that it is so unique as a British road movie that is that is devoid of of plot the plot's kind of thrown away in the first few minutes really and then you think oh it's going to be a character study and then it's not a character study either because nobody's got any motivation nobody's got any backstory except what you see on screen which is very little so it just made me it just made me think wow this is um you know this is what a film could be it doesn't have to be that other thing it doesn't have to be entertaining and in fact um, you know, a film being entertaining can just be a byproduct of it being something much more significant and much more important. So it did take me a long time to to work out whether I loved it or hate it. But um, I, you know, I just absolutely love it, and it's uh, it's it's a re- it's really a one off in terms of not so much you know you can relate it to new German cinema, but it's it's a one off in terms of British cinema. Yeah, that's definitely something uh, I want to talk a little bit about that idea of its its uniqueness and 
trying to put that into a little bit of context. Neil, do you want to follow up on that? What's your what's your relationship to the the film? Similar in terms of I think the time. I think I saw it in the early two thousands, probably about about the same time uh, in London, um, and it was a film I'd heard about at university, sort of talking about the the the, the film funding of sort of British cinema in the in the you know sort of mid to late seventies um, and early eighties. You know, one of those kind of films that benefited from the sort of production funding. Um, but but it was sort of lumped in with early sort of Terence Davies works and, and things like that, not necessarily talked about. So just kind of a title really. Um, and then I saw it and sort of remembered the title and always liked the title. And it was certainly at a time when I was kind of getting into different types of music and, and electronic music as well at that time. So kind of just just checked it out as as I was doing and yeah, just thought, wow, this is this is just so strange. It's such a strange film. And it, it did kind of feel like new German cinema. It also felt like early seventies American road movies, something like Vanishing Point. It's got a real kind of existentialism, which sort of connects it to that, but but other things as well. Um, and yeah, just just struck me as as being a really sort of interesting piece of work. And the road movie thing I was that was interesting because it was the first film that made me realise that a road movie is not about distance necessarily. You know, like American road movies are kind of always about the distance travelled. Oh, we can't we can't have road movies in this country because we're small. And it's like mm, that's not to me that this kind of shifted what what a road movie could be. And also, there's a load of driving at the start. There's this really kind of beautiful time spent in London, particularly around West London kind of driving around London at the time, which links it quite nicely to something like Rude Boy, which is a, a really pretty terrible film in many, <laughs> in many many ways. But it's also fascinating as a kind of psychogeographical snapshot of, of kind of alienation in late 70s Britain and, and the environment. Um, you know, and as I was re-watching it this time, I thought, yeah, it's a reminder that sometimes great cinema is literally driving along the Westway with the David Bowie soundtrack. Like mm. it doesn't have to be anything else than that. It can be absolutely monumental. So um, yeah, so it was a film that kind of stuck with me. And one of those things that I think you, that when you see it, or, or if, you, if you see it at a certain time, like I did, it sort of becomes a, a marker of your taste, you know, like um, it felt like, okay, this is the music I'm listening to and want to listen to. I get the noirishness. I get, you know, almost the kind of Antonioni-esque stuff, you know, sort of picking up a lot of the stuff that it's doing and sort of saying, this is something I want to be, you know, associated with as as liking, and uh, so rewatching it after not seeing it for a few years, it was like, God, this film holds up. Like, there's something absolutely, yeah, strange. It's so strange. And I've got other things to say about that, but that you know that that was my sort of way into it. And you, your way into it is even even more uh, recent to that, Dario. Yeah, this is. I'd never seen it before, so this is the first time I'd seen it. And what was. I mean, there's there's so much I got to I can say about this, but just as a as a starting point, as I've watched it, it it really made me think about the kind of upbringing I had and the kind of access to um, cultural cultural texts, you know, cultural events, popular culture, avant garde culture, art, all of these things that. I really feel like, and I've always felt like I've kind of missed out on to a certain degree because I had a very, what you might call conventional lower middle class upbringing, you know, which was t- totally fine. Don't get me wrong, but we, we, I just w- wasn't in a in a house where music was played in the house. I wasn't in a house where I had an older brother, for example, or a father who would say, you know, we've got to watch this movie. 
You know what I mean? So everything I had access to was really just what was presented to me, you know, and it's very mainstream. So it's what you could go and see down the local cinema, what what's being shown on on the BBC and ITV and what you could get away with watching, you know, in a household that was pretty censorious. Right. So it just made me kind of think how much my my sort of relationship to culture is about catching up and it just tapped into all of the things that I've kind of learned about in the last pretty much since going to university when I was 25 in, in 99 and trying to catch up with ideas about, you know, whether it's philosophical ideas like existentialism or, or um, ideas around architecture and the transition from modernism to postmodernism and then getting into films and, and, and watching Wim Wenders movies and, and understanding the new German cinema. And I think, I've I've done a little bit of reading around around the film after after watching it and this idea I first read it in the Guardian piece by John Patterson where he talks about this is a this is a film without a cinema and I think Mark touched on it there that that idea of its its uniqueness and and even in the in the DVD extras there's there's an interview with Petit who talks about his his rejection really of of kind of what British cinema was in terms of the, the transition between the ang- angry young man phase to, you know, what essentially was kitchen sink drama, drama the play for today, then into into Ken Loach. And that ostensibly, that, that, that sort of gritty realism was what British cinema had become. And, and then on the, other side, on the other side, you know, you've got the sort of period drama, the very sort of BBC inflected idea of British history and, th- and this kind of stuff, which then morphs into Merchant Ivory and this, this kind of thing. And that idea that this film is a starting point for a direction of British cinema that never actually occurred is just fascinating to me. Because to me, this is, I loved it because it did strike me as Antonioni meets the German New Wave. It just reminded me so much of L'Aventura when I first saw that, where, you know, who are these people? Where are they going? Are they actually psychologically realist people? Is the, Are they just ciphers? Are they just ideas? And, you know, you can never really figure any of that out, but it just makes you, it just, it's just a film that makes you want to think. And yeah, I need to, I need to go back and, and watch it many, many times again. But yeah, that was just my sort of starting point with it. Where to go now? Um, I think that, yeah, I think what's interesting as well, you, you sort of mentioned the gritty realism there. It, it's a film that does also include that, you know, just by nature of the, the fact that it's, as Petit sort of called it, you know, it's 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 a film about what we were, where we lived, what we were wearing, and what we were listening to. It is, it does have a kind of document aspect to it, but it also is all these other things, and it really does feel like a snapshot of the time and the space that that sort of, I guess, certain types of people in Britain were inhabiting, um, and probably still continue to inhabit in in in, in many ways. Um, Aren't we going with sort of the uh, state of Britain that is in the film? Aren't we heading? Well, not Britain. I mean, because <laughs> Britain for the time being, but you know, the it was what is it, seventy nine, eighty, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I feel that yeah. With the great leveling up that's going to be announced today, maybe that's what exactly what we're heading back into. And these, uh, I watched it again. I don't know. I probably watch it a couple of times a year, so I probably watched it a few a few months ago. Um, I was going to watch it the other day because the Blu Ray's coming out. I've put off watching it again, but it did feel like, oh my god, you know what an amazing film to come out of of Britain at this time and very very specific to that time in Britain. And uh, yeah, it did make me think, are we heading 
how different does Britain look now to then? Um, and not and maybe not look, but how how does it feel? Is there is there going to be another moment in cinema that's gonna that is gonna feel like this film feels? Watching it now is really interesting in just in terms of what the the, the main character, how his relationship to say um, technology and fashion and music. Um, I, I mean, that's the thing I can't quite get my head around. And maybe you guys have watched it a lot more than me in terms of that sense of the, you know, the, the, the tape cassettes and the typewriters and televisions. It's not overtly kind of utopian about the idea of, you know, music will save us or technology is going to bring us to this new utopia. But there's definitely this sense of that is the that is the sort of metier of the, the sensibility of this character and, and it's, I suppose it's tapping into that beginnings of of the new wave in the 80s where you know using using sort of electronic music and electronica and this kind of stuff to define a, a a kind of existence that is 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 supposed to be overtly modern and leaving the past behind but I just wondered I mean it's interesting now when you think about where we are with technology in the digital age you know and obviously Mike you've talked a lot about that in terms of not being able to kind of reconcile what digital offers you in terms of, of of creating art, yeah. And I just wondered, I wondered what Petit would think of that that sense of how we use technology today, as opposed to how we use how technology was sort of thought of and 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 used in in the late seventies, early eighties. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it, it's it is a uh, the the world that he's sort of portraying is is the modern world, isn't it? I mean, he's spoken quite a lot about portraying. You know the West London high rises and all that kind of stuff, not in a social realist kitchen sink drama sort of way, but in a in a kind of utopian, what's the expression, Balladian way. But then I always think about the end of the film, you know, and what what the end of the film means, because he's because he has sort of lost everything by the end of the film, and he's kind of free free of everything. If there is any kind of uh, resolution for that character which I don't think there is, because that's the beauty of it. He gets on a train and you think, well, where's he going? Which is actually really intriguing because it's like crying out for a sequel. Um, you know, he, he has freed himself of of everything that he's been dealing with up until that point, and it, it, in terms of possessions, in terms of responsibility, in terms of friends and acquaintances, and everything, he's he's so alone at that moment, but not in a depressing way. Um, so I don't know whether there's whether there's a statement being made in there or not. It, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because it, it's it's if you're watching it in 1980 when it came out. It, it's modern but you look at it now it's very retro and all those things that he's doing like the cassette you know i've got a pile of cassettes here that i'll listen to i'll listen to one of them at some point today i imagine but it's a very retro kind of looking backwards kind of thing whereas at the time it was very contemporary or even looking forwards so yeah it's it's difficult to it's difficult to judge judge that in a way yeah it's there's that kind of hauntological aspect of it isn't it that the, the, it speaks to a looking back now it speaks to a future that 
that never came, you know, and that that feels embedded in the in in the film is that mm-hmm. there's there's a sense that he is engaged with the new, you know, in the car on the motorway through the landscape with these the brand new craftwork set. I mean, the craftwork is obviously the so important in that sense because it was the music of the future. But there's a sense in how he navigates the other spaces in the film between people and his own space whether he ever subscribes to the idea that, that this is the future and that we are moving towards anything. And that's probably a reading that can be allayed, allayed to the film latterly. But but I think that there is a tension in the film between those ideas about what we were being told and what, we are, what we're being told now, you know, the levelling up, what the future's going to hold and what we inherently feel is going to be the future and and how there are kind of symbols of the future which are often technological that, that, that I think certainly don't always feel like they are going and it's weird to think that tapes were the future when you look at a tape now compared to other other musical but then all the you know supposedly the you know again what's interesting is supposedly the, the high fidelity the kind of the, the best music format is only for the elite you know it's only if you've got you know access to jay-z's money or neil young's archives Do you know what I mean like it costs a lot of money to have so the tape is is a is a, pl- a way of transporting you through technology to the future i think it's really interesting the other thing as well just on that i think is that his What's really kind of liberating about him, as, what I find as a character, particularly watching it this time, was almost the kind of the Kafkaesque nature of the the, the way that the story unravels, and it sets up this this potential plot, like you say, very loose idea of a plot, but mm-hmm. you're expecting, but he kind of actively resists the convention of following the patterns that are kind of laid out before him. You know, resists that by essentially doing nothing and and following, you know moments with people that are not going to help him on this quest you know but he's not interested in a quest you know like uh, or certainly not that kind of quest i think there's so many interesting things about how he engages with the moment that are quite telling about what what petite was it was it was almost kind of unconsciously interested i think in kind of conveying about about the time which are still resonant now for sure mark as somebody who sort of shoots has shot quite extensively in, in black and white and has made you know movies in in terms of them documenting space and time and traveling and how does this film work aesthetically to to create that that sense of um not an anti-road movie but a road movie that's interior as well as exterior well i think i think when i when i first saw it i think i was pretty put off by the fact it was black and white or not put off but it would have probably been a, a slight barrier to me enjoying it um, or I, how that's what I would have felt before I'd seen it. But I think the photography is absolutely beautiful. I think I think Pettit's talked before about it was to do with architecture as the reason that he shot black and white. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I I think it adds for me black and white is a real cheat in a in a really positive way because what I'm interested in is abstraction, and my challenge is always to create something. To, to abstract what we're looking at, what we're seeing and what we're hearing. And I think black and white is just a built-in layer of abstraction that you can just put there straight away. By making that choice to shoot black and white or to retime your footage black and white or whatever, you, you create this level of abstraction, which I think is the first... Th- this would be a completely different movie if it was in colour. Um, you wouldn't have that initial level of abstraction. And I think that the... I mean, we haven't mentioned it, but the opening sequence of this film, partly because of Heldon by David Bowie playing over the top, which is just such an incredible opening for a film, but also the shot 
that travels through the flat at the beginning of the film, which I always thought was handheld. And I loved the fact it was handheld and it wasn't perfect and it was sort of searching out. And it's it's slightly underlit, so you can't quite see the periphery. And so it's it's in some ways it's incredibly frustrating. And I would really love to see that shot in Cinemascope Technicolor, but it would it would completely destroy it because that's what pulls you in. It's what makes you sit forward in your seat is this opening shot. And actually, I just I just watched the um, the interview with Pettit on the on the DVD, and uh, he said it's actually a Steadicam shot. But what I love about it is that it was a Steadicam shot in in a tiny little stairwell that was so small that this, you couldn't really operate the Steadicam in the way that it should be operated. So you do get this very handmade feel to it. So straight away, it feels like there's somebody making the film. And that, that for me is always really important. I, I want to I want to feel that there's somebody behind the camera. This isn't an invisible form. This isn't the eye of God telling me a story. There's somebody operating the camera. And I think that runs all the way through it. There's nothing there's nothing particular there's no particular moments in the film that draw attention to the fact that it's a film. You know, it's not cut in a way that jumps around in time particularly or or um, unsettles the continuity of of time but there are moments where you just where it's you just reminded that there's somebody behind the camera and the, the, another good example is the bit where they where the the shot looking through the windows of the Grosvenor Hotel in Bristol that's done on the flyover on the old temporary flyover there and it's great because you think well who who's in the car whose point of view are we looking at here and it snaps you out of the of that world of it being a sort of uh, the eye of God, and 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 I think there was just I don't know a lot about the resources they had or the or the or the budget. Obviously, it's Martin Schaefer who, who was Robbie Muller's assistant who shot it, but I've, I've seen a few sort of behind the scenes photos, and I, it it looks quite handmade uh, in in a lot of ways. You know, the the sort of temporary towers that they throw up and the and the Citroen 2CV used as a tracking vehicle and all of the kind of old classics. So it, it, it formally and aesthetically, it, it really excites me. Like I say, it's not tricksy. It doesn't draw attention to the form in a, in a very self-conscious way, but there's definitely a sense there's somebody behind the camera, um, which for me is that's, that's really important that, that I, I don't really get on with films that don't have that within the aesthetic. Yeah, and, and Neil, I've, I've got this theory that films are often lean towards being music-driven or text-driven. And obviously, you know, it can be a bit, a bit of both, but it seems to me that this is kind of as close that you would get in a film that, you know, that comes later than sort of like the 30s and the 40s that, that is reaching for this this idea of pure cinema where... You know, if you think about music being an abstract art form, which just doesn't have a narr- have a narrative, but yet provokes our emotions, let's say. And this is a film that is undoubtedly kind of working on the back of the music to create a sense of tone, to create a sense of emotion. But I don't know. I mean, it's, it, is it something more than that? What, how important and what role does the does the music play here? Oh, it's kind of yeah, it's 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 essential. You know, and I mean that in terms of the essence of the film as well as, you know, sort of being key to making it work. Um, and it kind of manifests itself in really interesting ways in terms of the role that the music plays. I think a lot of it is in the performance 
is it Beam, David Beams? I'm not sure of his name, but like he, he almost has to kind of really summon words, you know, like when he's talking, you know, the great conversation with obviously the German actresses, um, the German, you know, there's, there's obviously massive miscommunication, but a lot of the time he's, he's really trying to bring out language, you know, um, doesn't really want to speak, you know, uh, and almost to kind of to send us back to what is essential, which is, you know, what he's wearing and, and, and where he is and, and what, what, what they're listening to. You know, and Petit has sort of said that the music is so key to it. Um, and what's what's kind of amazing about the film is that this is probably, you know, for me, like it, it, it defies kind of grasping it because of the kind of the monumental nature of the musicians, particularly Bowie and Kraftwerk that you hear, you know. And I think when you when you watch films, particularly sort of post-90s film, post sort of train spotting, um, with this kind of massive sort of re-evaluation of the economics of of soundtracking um, and how much it costs to do stuff. You can't, you kind of can't believe that it's so free and that almost that there's a freedom to just to plonk a bit of music here and there and it, and and it just be the absolutely most perfect piece of music. But that piece of music is something that is would now be massively expensive and would be probably more than the budget of the film. The bit you know, film, the budget of the film was very low, but now trying to get a complete David Bowie track at the start of your film, it's. So I think that that kind of plays into certainly the things that are now very understood, but 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 would all have always been inherent because there is such a uniqueness to the way that the both what the music is and how it plays out in the film. I just I love how free it is that you know when you sort of hear the stories of how he got the music, it's great. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he knew someone who knew Bowie. Um, he sent a thing to to Ralph Hutter. Um, who mistook this? Do you, you know that story? Mistook the title of the yeah, film for yeah. the folder. What a great, you know, like, yeah. and then just, just magic. There's a magic to it, you know. And obviously, you know, wanted one song from Stiff Records, who then gave him everything, and you just, and then you lead to the amazing tiny moment, which kind of says a lot about his character, which I love, which is when he's DJing and he said like, someone in Hartlepool has asked, or someone in Austerly has asked for this. Here's something better, and <laughs> just play Sweet Gene Vincent. It's like, just the, it's such an amazing, and he's just like, so like, this is better. You, you know, there's such an attitude to it. And the attitude of the music is, is kind of present throughout. I kind of wax effusive about it because I think it's it's still so exciting, you know? It's still so exciting to both hear the music in the room, but also to hear how it's deployed and to be absolutely how you are supposed to engage with with the film rather than through dialogue and rather than through plot, you know? Like, it is about sound and image in a really, really pure sense, like, which is why that scene of, you know, all's crashing in the same car, which is a night, you know, textually an interesting title for that song that's, you know, in terms of the reading of the film. Must have been touching close to 94. Oh, but I'm always crashing in the same car. It's 
why it feels so so wonderful because it's it's it's, it's it is just look look at what you're seeing and, and listen to the sounds and the sounds are incredible and what it looks incredible and it's it's just inviting you to enjoy it on a purely emotional level um but there's a smartness to it which which means it lingers beyond just being a an advert it's not an advert you know no and it's, and it's also not papering over the cracks in a film that doesn't work which quite often you know you 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 stick a song over the top because the mood of the scene doesn't work. You know, I th- I've certainly done that at times. I think everybody's done that at times, but it's, that's not what he's doing at all. And, and you can see that by the way the, um, the titles come up because the music is the first thing that's credited, isn't it? It sort of introduces it as if it is almost like a concert film. You're now going to hear the music of Devo, Kraftwerk, David Bowie, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So it's not, it's not apologetic. It's very, it's a very proud use of, use of that music and it has the tracks as well which is also really interesting it's not you know it's specific it's these pieces of music by these artists as well which i think yeah. is really so you're, cool. so you're not wondering going oh i can't wait for the credits because i want to find out what that song was <laughs> you've been told exactly what you're going to hear up front and you're sort of waiting for those moments which again takes away from that idea of um you know a, a sort of suspension of or revealing things in the narrative you know nothing everything's Everything's spelled out out front. This is what this is what you're going to see, and this is what you're going to hear, and here it is. Yeah, I thought to me um, that the Bowie track at the beginning played as it as it does. You know what I mean? It has a kind of hopeful air to it. But as the film went on, retrospectively, it, it became more ironic in my head that that use of heroes. You know, because it's kind of like you know, who, who heroes of what? Who are the the, the heroes here? This, which and could be, it, could it, be it heroes. Morphed... <laughs> Doesn't say we're going to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be heroes. Yeah, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> but that's what I mean. It's it's kind of like what, what, where is the what's the heroism that's being searched for, displayed? Or, you know what I mean? It played kind of anti, I think, to to some of the uh, you know the aspects of the, of the movie that that was kind of interesting. And then I had to, you know, I was very amused with with Sting pop, popping up. Um, and I, I don't know. Is that an accept, acceptable sting? <laughs> it's the most acceptable you get, really, with sting, isn't it? I mean, I think the thing is, like, <laughs> you're going to say that. <laughs> um, you know, when he's being, when he's, when he's forced to not be sting, or as, or most sting, he's, you know, because I think that, you know, this is an interesting period for sting as an actor. You know, he, he put, he's, he, he's really good in Quadrophenia. Yeah. A bit later, like- he's really good in Mike Figures' his Stormy Monday. And he's good here. Like, he does the job really, you know, this yeah, lovely little Eddie Cochran moment, yeah. you know. And I think that it's a nice reminder of, of what, he's an interesting person to look at in movies, I think, you know. Um, when, and and the bit, you know, when the, when he plays the Cochran song after, um, after Matey's driven away, that's, that's great. It's so beautiful. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Sting fan or a fan of the police or anything like that, but it's, so, I mean, it's a beautiful song, but he does mm. play it beautifully. And it's so... You know, if you read that in the script, you'd be like, "Nope, we're yeah. not doing that." But it, but it's so sort of cheesy and contrived that it's it's brilliant. And there are actually a few moments like that in the film, I think. But he's just not afraid to go the whole way and putting Sting yeah. in there and getting him to perform like that to nobody, lent against a petrol pump, no significance at all to anything, just because it's a moment. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Absolutely. is really very simple 
Just follow the rules and you will see. And as life travels on and things do go wrong, just follow steps one, two, and three. Well, that sure sounds like heaven to me. Acceptable sting. Acceptable sting. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but you're but you're right. Yeah, Quadrophenia. You got got to mention Quadrophenia as as well because he is uh, he's more than acceptable <laughs> there as well. Okay, I'm not going to get into the criteria of what's acceptable in music terms, but anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the other thing that really sort of struck me, and and again, doing a little bit of reading around around the uh, the film, there's a really nice piece by Oliver Lunn in the BFI who went to the locations as they are now, and it's you know some of them are kind of similar, and some of them are completely changed. So the, the Camden Plaza is now a JD Sports, and um, it's interesting how, say for example, the graffiti, yeah, because <laughs> that's that's exactly what we need, isn't it? Yeah, the uh, the, the, <laughs> the 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 Harrow Road obviously is still there, but the, and there's graffiti there, but it's not as it's it's in no way politically charged as in Free Astrid Prol, for example. And the Bristol flyover was torn down in, in 98. And I think one of the things about the the architecture, which links to that idea of the way that European filmmakers shoot European places, you know, if you're shooting Berlin. And, and again, it, it, there's a sort of aesthetic aspect to it. So when you see flyovers, for example, used in this, they're, they're kind of hopeful. They're, they're ways of escape and they're really, really impressive. Or, you know, the brutalist ar- architecture is lit in such a an interesting way and it has that sort of utopian feel but then on the other hand when you step back and think about it you know nobody wants to live in high rises <laughs> anymore it's just it's amazing to me the sort of disconnect between the aesthetics of of something when it's when it's put on film and shot in this way and then the kind of realities of it outside but i think maybe they do come together those questions sort of come together in the film my my favorite bit architecturally is the um is when he's driving into Bristol, and I think he's going the wrong way because it's on the M. Is it the M32 that comes into Bristol from the M4? Might might be too much of a technical motorway. Oh, I don't know. But um, <laughs> but it, but he, I'm gonna yeah, he come, out. But, and, and he goes past the old Bristol Rovers ground. And I think the football results are being read at the time, and you hear them on the radio, which is something that I'm actually lifting from from that and putting into Ennis Main this a, a football. Yeah football results being read out on the radio because I just love that moment because for me that's Saturday afternoons you know when football used to be played on Saturdays and you'd have every single score and he's going past this old open cornered football ground and it just and it's a really miserable weather wise it's a real miserable moment in the film but for me it's like oh I just you know I just love I just love it you know and that's now that's now an Ikea and I know they kept one of the um, floodlights up, you know, one of the old-fashioned floodlights. I think they kept up there for a long time, whether it lit the car park or something, I don't know. But you, you could sort of... It was almost worse that they'd left a little bit of it there. But there it is, there it is on, on screen, and it's... Um, yeah, that just that gets me every time. I've got, I've got a still of it up on the, um, up on the wall here of that shot. Well, that kind of speaks to that kind of sense in the film that, like... The, 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 the... Whatever is now and modern and whatever the future is going to be, it's not necessarily going to be better 
you know, and it's not necessarily going to be progress. And we have a romanticism looking back on that time. But I think there is something in the film which is projecting that you can't build your way out of what's fundamentally wrong with society, you know, like that, that, that these modern projects are. And it is a kind of almost a kind of postmodern time in terms of the, the, the promises of modernism are not necessarily coming off. And certainly Britain in the late 70s would be, you know, is a place where that is patently true in terms of some of you know some of parts of society so i think it's it's almost where those two things meet isn't it it's like the film has a projection of of almost a hopeless future but it's capturing these things which it doesn't know are going to be romantic it doesn't know we're going to miss but it assumes that something's going to take the place of these things which is not going to be better it's not going to be a future that is progress yeah. and well and then you end up you know he ends up on the precipice looking into a huge hole and he, you know, he can't go any further on. And it's a quarry, you know. It's where it's the rock that came out of, out of the ground to create this utopian dream. And there he is, staring into the void in this impossible, genius, impossible situation with the, the car. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know how much of that is a, a comment. You know, yeah. is, it, it, is it? Was he trying to be prophetic? Was he? Was is there a, a message in there, or is, is it just a state of the nation statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels more like a feeling than a. Yeah, and that, I, I had to. I was. I must say, I was amused by that line when when they start that when he asks why do people live on the coast, and it's kind of it's kind of because like, it's the last resort, you know. And it's just that like, has these connotations, and I know there's been so much in the paper, hasn't there, Mark, recently about you know Cornwall and uh, you know with what's happened with the pandemic and second homes and all this this kind of stuff. But there's this connotation again about. The, the naffness of the British coast Easy. and how that ju- just is so different <laughs> to, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, having lived there, you know how much I love uh, be, being uh, down in Cornwall, but... I think you mean the English yeah, coast. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I, 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 am, uh, I am meaning that. But that sense of, the, you know, it's a place that's been underinvested in in years and has a similar kind of reflects this this kind of sense of being having a utopian sort of sheen to it when it was first put in place but very quickly it becomes dilapidated and and doesn't look great and yeah it's just it's just interesting how how that has never really gone away and is still sort of something that is talked about and argued over yeah well i mean as soon as humans get involved they ruin it i mean that's the thing whatever you do doesn't need anything mm. you know yeah i mean that that, that that's the that you look at somewhere like um, it's like Western Supermare, isn't it? You look at Western Supermare, and you think, I mean, it, it, it's it's the Bristol Channel, it's the River Severn, it's mud, it's all of that. But you know, that, that's I mean, it was kind of bad enough to start with, and then stuff is created that is then made, yeah, like you say, maybe fine while there's people there, while there's investment, while there's whatever's needed in order to keep it going. But as soon as any of that goes, then, yeah, you're left with this wasteland and, it, and it's doubly tragic because of what was there before, you know, a, a sort of natural beauty. You've got it all over Cornwall, just fucking ruining Cornwall minute by minute at the moment. And, and I think the encouraging thing at the moment is that people are standing up and there is a, there, there does feel like there's some sort of uprising against what's going on. But that's because of the acceleration of development. Um, the places in Radio One, yeah, it's a, it's a gradual, it's a gradual decline, isn't it? And it's and it takes somebody to point a camera at it to sort of point to to go, look, this is, <laughs> look at the state of this, you know. No wonder the no wonder the film is ultimately joyless when you're, <laughs> you know, when this is the setting. 
when when he said that, it just reminded me of kind of like day trips to Blackpool and Morecambe up north. You know where I'm from up north, and it's that sense of on a Saturday afternoon when if it's 25 degrees and there's people everywhere. Yeah, that that papers over the cracks, as you say. But sort of in in January when it's when it's minus two and pissing it down and you sort of realise that that facade doesn't look the same way and behind it there's an awful lot of poverty and deprivation, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, But, you know, I think psychologically that sort of holiday is, is all about uh, looking at a horizon, isn't it? You can go and stand mm. and look at a horizon and then you can go, well, there might be something better over that horizon and that gives you enough optimism to go back to work on Monday, you know? Well, I think as well there's, you know, I was reading this thing about what, what Joan Didion said about the American West and that there's a romanticism about the coast, you know, and kind of going out West, but there's also a desperation of when you get there, you know, that that's for, for so many people that it is as far as you can be, you can see the horizon, but you can't go beyond the limits of the land. And it makes you realize if you can't do it here, then that's it. You're, you are literally out of the land. And I think that the desperation aspect is, is something which is present in Radio on, even if the characters are resigned to that knowledge, that and what I like about British road movies is that is the limit of the space. There is that kind of idea that Bristol and then the coast, but he's not in. You know, he's not up on the Pacific Northwest. You know, five hundred miles from a town. He's twenty miles from Bristol. He's you know eighty miles from like you can't escape the the island you, you know and that that's that feels really present and it's there in, in something like you know Paul Andrew Williams London to Brighton you know so much of the tension in that film comes from the fact that it's an hour train ride you know that the, the threat is an hour train ride away from you know I, that inescapability which I think is really interesting and I, I'd not really kind of put that desperation in until I read that thing and it's like yeah of course like the, you can go to the coast and but you, you're not running from anything. And that's why so much of it is so damaging is because it's it's fueled by death. And that's what's fueling it now. You know, this the pandemic kind of has opened our eyes to a different, we all want to live in a different way. Oh yeah, so let's let's just move to Cornwall. Like what would that, what would that solve for any, it wouldn't solve anything, you know, it would just, it would make everything worse for everybody. Um, but, but that, you know, it's kind of packaged as an escape. And even in the film, there is that because of the nature of the journey, there's a sense that, Oh, it must be getting. You must be. It must be getting better when you get out of this city, and it. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not. It's not that film, and it's not that. It's not that in real life either. No, and I think there's. There doesn't seem to be any hint, hint of aspiration in Radio no. One, whereas now it's all driven by aspiration and lifestyle, and you know all of this kind of stuff. Where these words, in terms of, wouldn't have existed then. And I think that that what captured brilliantly in um, in Radio One is that line where um, uh, Lisa Kreutzer's character says. Um, I thought we were going to sleep together, but now I know we won't. And that's the, you know, that, that captures it all. That's that moment of that. That's the, that's the running to the coast in, or, you know, get, getting to the edge of the land in uh, hoping that something's going to change, but actually the land just stops and there's an unattainable horizon there, you know. Yeah, that, that relates to what Neil, Neil said at the beginning about being it being an existentialist film. And I was trying to sort of kind of put some, in my head some meaning to that in a sense and it is about that idea of <laughs> when we come to a text like this it's almost as if we're, oh we're in a normal film we're, we're invited to be on the same level as the you know empathetic to the journey of the protagonist but in a sense you don't get, ever get the sense he's searching for meaning here and the the spaces and the places have this kind of 
desolate emptiness and 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 the, you know the pr- protagonist is exemplifying that he's a he's a subject who's who's nominally on a journey but but one without a a specific destiny and these people that he encounters whether it's it's sting or the uh, or the german women they don't provide a shape to that journey at all beyond the the fleeting or the you know the transient connections that they have and that's where you get that that sense of that sense of alienation i think tomorrow i go to west You think she's there? Vielleicht. An aunt by her father lives there. Maybe she knows. Her father's English? No, he's German. He works in England. He's a businessman. His aunt come from Germany because of the war. How do you say? A refugee. Refugee? Yeah, and I think that, you know, going back to the ending again, you know, where, where's he going? Where does he go after mm. when he leaves his car and he and he jumps on the he jumps on the train? You know, and presumably that's you know, it's, it, I mean, geographically speaking, that train is the Bristol is the is the branch line that ended up going down to sort of Minehead. But if you get away from thinking about the specifics of that, you know, it's, is he going east or west? Is he is he is he going home or is he carrying on? And that sort of throws up another really interesting question where where does he end up next you know what 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 happens because but it doesn't matter because there it isn't about that it's about those interactions he had up until that point and then you know you make the rest of the film you 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 create the rest of his his narrative so which is great because that's why you know for me coming out of the cinema not knowing whether I like the film or not it just carried on playing in my head because it wasn't tied up in the in the same way that a conventional film would where you enjoy it for an hour and a half or three and a half hours or whatever and then you get all your messages and everything's tied up at the end and you walk out into the foyer of the cinema <laughs> and somebody says you know what what have you just seen and you go oh, I don't remember because it was like it was tied up you know yeah. whereas this it just it's just life man <laughs> it's just mo- it's just a series of moments and and it either it connects with you or, or it doesn't I'm sure you know for a lot of people that, who are looking for something else in the film it really doesn't work but for me it was something that really was transcended the form yeah i think that's really nicely put you know i think it's if it's nature and agenda or whatever the word is they're not great words for it but you know is is to be is to be exactly what it is you know and if if there's an invitation it's in the space that you're expecting to find because it's a film you know you're expecting to find plot and character and meaning and stuff and then you either you either don't take anything out of it um other than the kind of aesthetic pleasures, or if you do, it's entirely on you. You know, it's not. There's very little relatability, or because those are very specific moments. To essentially, I think as well, how they made the film. You know, it wasn't even. It's not scripted in a like. You know, it's. It's. I think the vendors asked him to cast Kreutzer, didn't? And, and you know, because and he'd seen her in Alice in the Cities. Was like, yeah, sure. So kind of making this. It's not. It's not a grand statement. It's a. It's a moment in time with moments in it, and I think that's really important. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I used to get really irritated with people who'd say, oh, I want to make a film, and then they didn't have an idea for the film. Because I always used to think, you could have something to say, and then you decide the, the way that you're going to say it. And that might be a song or a poem or a film or whatever, but you had to have something to say to start with. But I do get the sense that maybe Chris Pettit wanted to make a film, and that was the starting point. And then, and then came up with what the content was going to be, which, yeah, when I was younger, I, I would have, I, I would have found that the wrong way to do it. But I think, as long as you then go, right, well, I've, I want to make a film. I'm just going to make a film about life. I'm going to make a film about. I'm going to create an atmosphere. I'm going to try and capture a moment in time, something that's quite insignificant. If you sort of described it, but by making a film out of it, you give this thing significance so that in 40 years time you know people are recording a podcast talking about it and trying to trying to articulate what it is about it that's so special I think you know maybe that's it yeah and it was I think there were certain things that they had to do because of the German money wasn't it they needed certain German um input into the film so yeah to to have to have a film that's in some in in a lot of ways is so sort of low concept and uh that, that you can put somebody in there because an exec producer has said you'll get a bit of money if if you have this person then I think it's kind of amazing isn't it that you can be that fluid with it really yeah and they don't try and make it work quote unquote do you know what I mean like it it, it it becomes it becomes absolutely kind of part of the the experience of the film you know there's no real translation there's no point to it it's not like you know stick stick my sister in it and then you have to build this big romantic scene it's just it's an awkward sequence because they, she couldn't really speak any english at all um and rather than try and make it so that it would be interpreted it was just like that that's enough <laughs> that's enough yeah and the whole premise for that character being there and what her search is and everything like that is so kind of artificial and kind of um, unbelievable but it's all just it but it's so it's so odd that it's it, it is kind of believable it's part of that film like like the whole um i know he did, Pettit talked about the um he referenced performance and the the bit where uh where James Fox's character gets the address for Power Square at Paddington train station and it being so on the nose this kind of not even exposition but a device that has to be in there to justify some action later on and I, th- I, I love all of that stuff again before I would have because it's sort of un, unrealistic or uh, and I would have dismissed that but now that sort of artifice and and things that work within the logic of the world of the film the more of that the better for me and there's quite a lot of that in in this film you know, these these convenient things that happen alongside the completely inconsequential things that happen. I think that all helps to make this such a a unique a unique film. The other thing I love about this is um sorry, just one thing I just thought of is I, I read recently that Chris Pettit said that Big Wednesday is the possibly the greatest American film of the nineteen seventies. So this goes back to me seeing it the first time and thinking, you know, this this film explains why I like certain films and that I, w- I was so delighted to read that he's a massive fan of Big Wednesday because that would be one of my other top films and, and he, he gets what I get in that film, I think. Which, and again, a lot of people don't. Very unpopular film, in the, <laughs> certainly at the time of release. Yeah, I'm just to just to wrap up, I wanted to ask Mark really what he, he thinks about this this sense of Radio One representing uh, a kind of strand of British cinema that we've 
we've never had. You know, that idea of this being really, it's a European art house movie that happens to have been made in and about England, really. Um, and, and, and maybe what does that, does that say anything to you about how cinema is is sort of thought of or in the uk and and you know what british film culture actually is really i yeah i don't know if um what it makes me wonder is whether there were other films like this and we just never saw them but i suppose the more i've read about this film the more i've probably realized there there isn't else they would be talked about and they would be being reissued as well so i don't know it's it's very difficult to to kind of it's difficult because at the time, you know, I wasn't around when this film came out. I don't know what happened to it, you know, how well it did or whether it just disappeared straight away. Now, what's quite nice is that it's, you know, 15 years ago or whatever, when it was when it was reissued. It's still, I don't think it's sort of like universally loved, is it? So it's not like it's a, it's a lost treasure that's been rediscovered and i'm kind of glad that because it it means that it's still as powerful as it ever was you know and it's still formally as challenging and you know and maybe you know we're not we're not ready for films like this this is still or certainly at the time of the release it was still you know still too um it, it was still too out there really but i think i think everything's sort of changed sort of my viewing patterns have certainly changed in the last couple of years because traveling with bait to a lot of film festivals you know i've just seen so few mainstream films and so many festival films that my idea of the films that are out there the picture i have in my head of the film landscape is totally skewed by that because i've seen all of these festival films while i've been traveling but of course most people haven't seen any of those films so for me i'm thinking yeah it's all in rude health because all those films are out there but then you do look at the box office certainly pre-pandemic and think well no everybody's still watching the same films but then what the pandemic has done is is sort of thrown a real spanner in the works in that sense as as well because you are getting these more kind of out there films that are being that are getting to audiences because the mainstream stuff all got held back so that's not specific to britain of course there's still you know mostly comes from america so yeah I don't know. I would. It would be great to see another sort of radio on, but it takes a very specific person to make it because in other people's hands, this could be terrible. It could be a terrible, terrible navel gazing, wanky film, but it's just done so brilliantly. Um, so I don't know whether that answers your question. Dario, but yeah, I, I just think he's, I think he's just a really unique, a really unique filmmaker, you know, a very small group of those um, psychogeographical filmmakers that I just love that seem to be quite, you know, that they are, Britain is, is good at producing them and they're not celebrated enough, you know, because I, I tell you, know, this, this goes all the way through to people like Andrew Cotting, I'd say, and so, you know, Ian Sinclair, who, who Cotting, collaborates with and um chris pettit is collaborated with so you know but not to blow smoke up your ass but it's also you know reflected in bait i think in terms of you know the circumstances in terms of how well bait has done i think you know i think even you would admit is a kind of is a surprise an absolutely brilliant surprise but it's kind of like wow yeah look at this movie that's done so well and it and it's like you know, we, we should be able to see a, a an entire trajectory of films that go back to Radio 1 that, 
do these these kinds of things and maybe uh, like you say maybe they are out there they're just they're just unseen sorry neil did you uh, what did you make of all that yeah no similar similarly really i think that you know without turning mark's kind of wanky philosophizing into a kind of bit more of a wank fest by saying that you know i thought about that earlier when you said about you know what, what where's the film that, that that kind of does similar things 40 years on and you made it you know like uh, you know i think bait is a very comparable film in terms of yeah formally daring challenging work that kind of speaks very directly to a, a feeling of a moment um you know i think it's it's very much in that tradition um and, and and stands alongside it but i think as well what it does raise is the is, you know which i think is a really interesting thing you said about like, what, what have we lost it's like this was funded by the state you know like there was it's grant funding you know and obviously the bfi sort of became involved in your work you know as to help it get to that audience you know um their support kind of certainly was part of that that ability for people to see it in that space and it does always beg the question of like what should what should the state what film should the state be funding um and it would absolutely horrify most people to think that their money would go into a black and white film with a load of german music about someone not doing anything um do you know what I mean? but but to me that's that is the, that's the role of that money the the merchant ivories will get you know the period dramas will get made they sell very well you know and if we didn't have a 10 a year and we had five a year would that be okay um you know, and I think it, it, it does it does does beg that question of there might not have been another radio on, but there might but that gap between radio one and bait, there's probably a few films that would have been similarly driven by a very unique artistic taste that we have lost because for huge sways there wasn't the support. And it you know, you read the backstory and it was just, yeah, like he knew he knew of this bit of money and it was a bit of money, you know, but the, the, his his approach was not to try and tell a hundred million dollar film it was like okay well i can get a bit of money and i'll do this thing with it and it was driven by artistic impulses and the result is something which is absolutely a key work in british cinema even because mostly because of its, its strangeness um you know and i think what's interesting about bait as well is that there's there's a lot of films currently dealing with similar themes in the way that at that period there was films about britain coming out from different types of social realist or you know kind of but it still stands apart formally. It still stands apart, you know, and that's um, that's what's really interesting about this film is you can place it in a time, you can see the time it's made. It doesn't feel like any other film that was coming out um, at the time. No. And it's, it, it is interesting with the BFI because with, with all, the, all the older stuff that they reissue, which is fantastic, but it is a constant reminder of how much great work there is out there that hasn't, been distributed or is in need of redistribution and whether there is a load of work that is ready to go into production alongside that that is as unique and and culturally important that just never gets into production because of those you know the reasons that we all know that things get focus group to to death at the inception you know, like, how could you have pitched Radio On to, in in the, it, it, I mean, there are, you know, there are funding strands that are great and they do give complete control and they they do hand that over to the to the filmmakers. But I mean, even putting that into a document or whatever, and it, it wasn't, didn't didn't he didn't he pitch it to vendors in a taxi whilst talking to him about 
while interviewing him for Time Out about um, shooting the American friend, you know, which is just such a ridiculous story. It has to be true, you know, but, but yeah, you're right. Public, public money, a, a sponsored film, go out and go out and, and make what you want to make, you know, and that's, re- that is really dangerous and it is incredibly risky. And I said, shut up actually, because film four have just done exactly that for us. They, <laughs> we pitched them an idea and they, and they gave us a, for them a very small amount of money, but gave, but have given us the freedom to do what we want to do. You know, we've told them what we're going to do and they're, they're, they're you know, they're on board with us and they're, they're kind of um, following our progress, but they, there's no interference or anything. So hopefully, yeah, ho- hopefully those films, do get made whether they then get seen you know that's the next that's the next hurdle isn't it maybe maybe you do have to wait 40 years for it to be reissued by the the bfi maybe that's the new distribution model (laughs) (laughs) it's a long ball game um yeah but i think that that's true isn't it it's not about individual support it's about structural cultures you know great so um really enjoyed that that discussion really enjoyed watching the film for the first time. Clearly, uh, um, Mark, thanks so much for for taking the time to to join us today. Really appreciate it. No, it's a pleasure. It's great to see you. See you both. Be good to see you in in person quite soon. Let's let's hope so. Let's hope so. You know, obviously, best of luck and best of success with the film, and uh, hope you enjoy the editing process. How long do you think it's going to take? Um, I th- I think we've got to deliver the the final thing at the end of November. So I'd like to, it's a bit weird because I've got to, because I shoot everything silently and post sync it and everything like that. I've just, I'm just, I haven't quite established what order I'm going to do stuff in. Because when I did bait, I, I did an edit and I voiced all the characters myself in order to get the rough cut done. And then I got the actors in and voiced the film, but there's so little dialogue in this. I'm, I'm thinking I might get the ADR done before I properly start the edit so that I just ADR all of the rushes because there aren't that many. So yeah, I, I'm, I haven't quite worked out how I'm gonna do it. I also haven't got a score for it yet. I'm, so I'm, I might, I might just do this rough assembly for the rest of the next two weeks, and then work on the score for a little while. And let the music lead it a little bit in the in the style of Radio One. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely uh, love to have you back on when it's uh, when it's out and uh, and talk about it. Uh, Neil, great to speak to you as usual. Yeah, uh, really fun. Um, yeah, glad we got to talk about this movie in this way. Really nice. Do we know what's coming next, or are we? Are we? Have we got um, a couple of things percolating at the moment? Lots percolating. There's always lots percolating. Um, I have no idea what will come to percolation next <laughs> in the next two weeks. Okay, well there you go. You know, we're not we're not trailing our next episode. It's it's. Uh... We're going to let the music lead us. Indeed, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, thanks to our audience for your continued support. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.